Hello, and welcome to Dungeon Talk, the general advice and discussion podcast from D&D Academy. I am Michael, and this is Dungeon Talk, episode 35. Ooh, ooh, rawr. In this episode, Caleb and I finish up our conversation with Porter, covering the majesty of the iconic owlbear from D&D, and then we have Porter give us the ins and outs of play-by-post games. This is the second half of a longer discussion we had with Porter. The first part can be heard on Dungeon Talk 34. I kind of noticed a weird echo a little bit on this one, more so than even in 34. Mostly it's when I'm talking. We are recording these Dungeon Talks over Google Hangouts, and I think that might be the cause, so I'm playing around with the settings a little bit. We have a new five-star review on iTunes. This one from Egama. The title is Just Keep Listening. And then the actual review says, The quality of many of the Made Men game episodes are terrible. But hang in there, the story is great, and the sound quality gets better. Personally, I could not agree more with that review, and I don't want to thank Egama for it. That puts us up to 22 five-star reviews on iTunes. So if you agree or disagree, we'd love to hear from you as well. I want to give another big thank you to everyone who's taken the time to give us some recommends over on RPGpodcast.com. We have jumped almost 200 recommends in like the last three or four weeks and now sit in eighth place on the leaderboard overall. That is fantastic, and I really can't thank you guys enough. So anyway, enough of my gushing. Here is Dungeon Talk, episode 35. Hoo! Hoo! Rawr! Next, the last thing we were going to talk about tonight is sort of setting up an, an encounter, and we've decided to make combat a, a separate podcast. We were going to do a whole podcast just on combat and all the different things that you can do to make it interesting and talk about minis and maps versus theater of the mind and sort of do like a pros and cons. So we're not going to get that into depth, but what we're going to do is a, is a feature that we're going to try to do continuously is the monster of the week, and we were going to pull a monster out of the monster manual and just talk about um, how you could use it, how you would play it, a way to make that particular creature interesting, and then if applicable, talk about some of the ways we've used it in the past. So we're going to move into our creature feature, which I actually think that's a better better, uh, better title than Monster of the Week. So, Caleb, what's our first creature feature? Our first creature feature is the owlbear. Yes. And I have uh, no idea I... what an owlbear sounds like, or I would make a horrible attempt at <laughs> Who, 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 roar, roar? I don't know. Yeah. So a very iconic creature, a very dumb creature in a lot of ways, um, and and it gets you know it kind of gets ragged on a lot because it is a creature that doesn't make a lot of sense, and you have to wonder what, where it actually came from. And I, you know, I think there's stories about there's like a bag of random dinosaurs that Gygax got at like a drugstore or something, and like half the monster manual came from that. And it's completely iconic from D and D. Oh yeah, absolutely. It exists nowhere else, and thus it is one of the one of the things like beholders and land sharks and such that are totally like part of the D and D shared experience. Yes. So we want to talk a little bit about the owlbear and kind of how you would use it, how it could play at the table, and then any anecdotes. So, um, Caleb, won't you go first? Talk about the owlbear and, and maybe how it could be used and how it could be interesting, or is there anything you want to share about the owlbear? Okay, so 
um, very briefly, I looked at the concept of the owl bear across three or four different systems. I looked at D&D Next, D&D 3.5, Pathfinder, and uh, 4th Edition slash Essentials. Overall, the Owlbear is a pretty static character. It's anywhere from a 4th to 8th level encounter. It's got a pretty average armor class, hit points, and damage. There's some flavor differences, but it basically all boils down to a big thing that hits you. And there's not much more to it than that. Uh, these are wild predators. They're not intelligent. Um, they are not the uh, outsmart you kind of monster. They're feral. They're eating. They're living. And if you wander into their territory, they're going to attack you. From a mechanical standpoint, looking at their average armor class, they're always a, a fairly average encounter. You know, they're not an encounter that is going to tax the PCs and push their resources unless you have a giant mass of them. Like if you stumbled into the owl bear nesting ground and there's 11 of them. If there's one or two, yeah, they'll do some damage to you and it'll take a little while to whittle down their HP, but it's an average roll to hit them and they don't have good saves. So they're yeah, not they're, a difficult They're encounter. a brute. Yeah, they're big brutes. In my uh, games that I've used them, they were essentially just that big brute. Uh, yep. They may have been a random encounter that I was like, you know what, I feel like I want to give the PCs one more encounter tonight to earn that last chunk of XP. Let's knock it out quick and easy. Here's a couple owl bears that you're <laughs> stumbled across. Done. Um, They're a good random encounter. They are. I personally have used them as template bears, kind of, for the skeletal or the zombie template, back from a, a 3-5 standpoint. And they're good to play around with, but that doesn't change what they do. They're more of a brute in that scenario. They're more of a, I'm an XP placeholder. <laughs> oh, you, you mean the min-maxing necromancer player who's like, why would I raise the skeleton of a regular bear when I can raise the skeleton of an owl bear? Yes. Who has better attacks? <laughs> I've never done that, ever. Of course not. <laughs> so I think the, the secret to using an owlbear effectively, in my mind, going back to what you said, is it's a predator. And I know oftentimes when I'm running encounters, I will do sort of a random thing at the table to decide which PC the bad guys attack. If there's a very obvious story element, like one character just casts like a fireball or they got a critical hit, there's a big amount of damage, then I would probably have the, the owlbear react and attack them. But normally I just roll a die and say, okay, one, two, three, four, this is one of the attacks. I think with the owlbear, that would do it a disservice is, he said, it's a predator. It's, it's either attacking to eat or it's attacking to defend itself. So it's going to attack one player until they stop moving. And then it will move on to another player. Or it's going to take that first PC out and then try to run away with the body hanging from its beak. So I think the only way to make the owlbear kind of an interesting encounter from a combat standpoint is, because I don't really know there's a lot of terrain features that are going to matter, because it you know, obviously doesn't really fly. Uh, you should always try to use terrain features as best you can. But it would have that owlbear probably 
burst out of cover, break out of some sort of concealment, and just hit, hit, hit one character until that character doesn't stop moving. And the party might be able to take it out pretty e easily, but I think there would be at least one player at your table that's looking at their character sheet and wondering how this night's going to kind of end up. Because I know at least in the D&D Next version is it has that uh, claw, claw, rend attack. If you hit with both claw attacks and you get that third attack, but it does extra damage, much like a regular bear. So yeah. you really want to try to give that first attack to be very ferocious. And then I wouldn't divide the attacks up because I just think that's a disservice to the owlbear. What do you think, Porter? So do you guys remember uh, back in May, oh, I guess this was... This was actually back in May of 2012. It was shortly after I think Next was being announced, but they started doing a, a they were redoing um, kind of this this artist look back at all a lot of the main D and D monsters. It was John, I can never say his last name, Shindehet or something like that. But he was doing his Dragon's Eye View articles of all the the monsters, and he did one on the Owlbear and presented some different um, visual presentations of the Owlbear um, and trying to. Uh, make it more interesting, <laughs> um, and uh, I one of them was actually of a much more almost gorilla-ish. It was a lot lighter at the at the bottom um, and a lot big beefy chest with long um, winged uh, winged arms, and it almost looks like something that could have been a really interesting like ambusher in a in a jungle setting. Um, it was actually a really scary drawing, but uh, I think that idea of the owlbear suddenly makes it a little more exciting. Um, if you're going with the big, burly, kind of old-school owlbear, I think they become a lot more interesting if they're the gar if they're a guardian in a non uh, in like a in like a wizard's tower or something like that, where they they aren't found out in the wild. If they're found out in the wild, I think they just become an a, a, another weird another beast. But if they are not found out in the wild, and the one you run into in the wizard's tower is, you know, one of the few you'd ever you'd ever find. Then there's a chance to make it a lot more interesting because it is such a bizarre creep thing that should not be. Right, and I think that's one thing that Caleb and I touched on when we did this the first time is don't be afraid to play with your world. The the owl bear from a you know just a natural sense doesn't doesn't really fit. It's just kind of an odd amalgamation. It's just combining two things and trying to make it interesting. So why not play on that rather than that, that being a detriment and make it there's only one owlbear. There's just the one and it was created by a wizard that's still currently alive and maybe carries it around as a pet. So you and make it owl. tough enough to be scary. Yes, you know, pump up its stats a little bit. Uh, I like the idea of it being an oddity that maybe is like a traveling circus or menagerie and it escapes. So you've got this you know, savage owlbear creature and loose in a city population, and it's you know it's it's kind of using its feral instincts to hide at night, and it's attacking people, and people are dying. And the police are having a hard time tracking it. You know, you can make all that work in a D and D game. Uh, and I think Caleb brought up last time that uh, you know maybe there's like a planar situation where the PCs actually have to travel to another dimension or another plane of existence for part of a game. And maybe that's where they meet the owlbear, and they've never, you know, this creature doesn't exist in our world, but there it's a natural being, and uh, it somehow comes back with them. Whether it escapes with them, it goes through the portal they leave open, uh, you know, I think I posited maybe it's very intelligent, and it actually acts as an ally to the PCs, and then and convinces them to bring it back with them, and then once it's in our world, it's like, ha-ha, and it, you know, it turns out to be evil, and now it's like a, a predator with no natural enemies, and it starts, you know, breeding like crazy. 
Um, and so it, it becomes the story that it's weird rather than just the, oh, we're finding an bear. That's weird. I really like what um, we kind of brainstormed with the take one version of this dungeon talk, where in the big picture, the owlbear, you just accept it as one of the oddities of D&D. But if you... And it, it's something that your player... Because we're always going to metagame a little bit, your players expect that kind of thing. So when you throw that curveball at them that this isn't the typical owl bear that you fought a few times before, it suddenly makes the game more exciting, and it gives them a little bit of freshness and a little bit of flavor. I, I like using the owl bear as the guard concept. Um, if uh, if this is something that a wizard created just to use, if it's something that comes from another plane and strikes a deal with a really powerful caster of some sort, you really have to get creative when you're a GM not to just throw encounter after encounter. And while the owlbear is just a brute that hits you and soaks up damage, what can you do to turn that around and have fun with it? Fun for you running the encounter and fun for your players who are rolling the dice. I mean, I could see a situation where the players encounter an owl, an owl bear, and it's the first one that anyone's ever seen or heard, and it's just the first in a long chain of these sort of mm-hmm. uh, creatures that start getting combined. Like, you know, the next time there's like a, a horse wasp, uh, you know, or there's like a pig snake, some kind of just crazy combinations that... Pig clear- snake! Pig snake. So clearly there's like this crazy wizard out in the forest that's doing these experiments and they're all getting you know running wild so using it as a story element rather than just an xp bag is where i would find enjoyment trying to use an owlbear like that i will say for your uh, for your farm boy with a sword campaign michael that um the owlbear is a really good enemy to throw at them to start emphasizing the fact that they're not in kansas anymore that they are now out in a big big scary world of stuff that they, you know, where they, they've graduated from, you know, wolves and regular bears, and now you get a, now you get a big scary owl bear. Your, your, the world will never, your world will never be the same again. That for, for the farm boy with a sword campaign, that's a, that's a good turning point. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point. I think uh, some of those more iconic monsters and the ones that are just a slightly bit off. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of monsters that make it make sense. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of using dire versions of creatures, dire, <laughs> dire wolves, dire bears. You know, if I really want to pump up an encounter, I'll have three or four wolves and then a dire wolf leading them that's more intelligent. Yeah. And um, I think that adds a little bit of depth to a, to, a, to an encounter. One more fun idea with the owlbear. Have an owlbear barbarian tribe, and all of these barbarians ride into combat screaming from the back of, an, of a quadruped owlbear. Wow. Now that's fun. That, that could be terrifying. Fun. <laughs> See, I think um, one of the uh, one of the holes we fall into as both GMs as players is that we just get so used to the world. We're used to fantasy world of whatever type it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think fourth edition tried to shake that up a little bit. I remember from one of the books they said, "Look, yes, it's a fantasy world, but." This world is ten times more dangerous than any world you've ever been in. Think of it as 
the city you're in is literally the only safe place you've ever been. It's a point of light in the darkness. The second you step out of that wall, you might die. So I remember I that a lot from the points of the point of light points of light D and D setting, the, yeah. the that kind of default setting for a while. That like they were trying, they were trying really hard to to get that idea in out there that that uh, the world is unknown and dangerous. And I think it was a pushback against all of the uh, the campaign worlds that had been so well documented that the the mystery and the danger had kind of gone away. And I, I agree with you. That's a really good way to start making things. Uh, 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 to try and bring that sense of wonder back into your game. Right, and I, I think that's really squarely on the, our shoulders as GM to not just write a plot twist, not just throw something really sneaky, oh, the tavern master you've known for your whole life is really the bad guy, dun-dun-dun, which is a great plot twist, nothing wrong with it, <laughs> but you kind of expect that. You expect that uh, loop to, to be thrown at you. Um, when when your PC is out on the road, what do you do to make that honestly, truly exciting? And whether it's an um, a creepy monster or an owlbear that acts totally differently than you would expect it to, or a barbarian riding an owlbear, which I want to do now, it, it's all it's our side of the game. I mean, our our part of the game is not just writing it, but it's making it exciting. That's how we as GMs kind of play the game. I just thought of another thing, too, um, just kind of struck me as, and I can't think of the right word, but you know like an actual owl, how it eats a mouse and then it coughs up the pellet that's just like the undigested parts? Yeah. I wonder if an owl bear would do that, but with like much bigger things. Ew. Oh, God. That's so a you great... Could, that's a oh, great idea. Your PCs oh. find this sort of like pellet-shaped wolf or horse, <laughs> maybe like a whole horse carcass, and they're like, what the frack is that? That would lead up to some tension about an owlbear. Oh. And I also going back to the owl thing, maybe if it gets big enough, it can fly. Because it is an owl bear, maybe more emphasis on the owl, and it actually has wings and it can fly. And it's a night predator. That yeah, would be terrifying. That, that's awesome. <laughs> nice, nice. I'm kind of scared of them now. <laughs> God damn. I would right, like right. to point out, though, in closing, that if we go back to the first release hack of D&D Next, their special ability was called Hug. Oh, wow. <laughs> so maybe they thought more Care Bear than Scary Bear. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Yeah, yeah. I don't Care, know. Care Bear stare. That's awesome. <laughs> All right, so we're going to move on to our last topic, and this is one Porter's pretty much going to take over for us, uh, and that's play-by-post games. So we start off this this uh, podcast talking about campaigns. So maybe you have the rules down, you have an awesome idea for a game, but you don't have any players. Or maybe something like it's happened to me is that I'm playing in a game, and I'm liking it, and the players are liking it, but then I get a cool idea for a different game, and I can't get my players to switch over, I don't have enough time to run two games in a week, or I'm already maxed out. So one of the avenues that you could look at to pick up another game as a GM or to be a player in is the play-by-post type of games. In all my career of playing role-playing games, I have n- had never 
participating in a play-by-post game until just recently. It's actually one of the first things that Porter and I and Caleb as well kind of got involved in, and we played in a game that Porter was running. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about sort of like, um, you know, how it works, positives, negatives, and maybe some, some things for people that are looking at doing that to, to consider. So play-by-post, uh, if you've never done it, is where everyone plays uh, plays the game to, uh, through text, and so it's a, it's completely written. And this will usually happen in a in a forum, um, so that the adventure is nicely threaded together. But it can happen uh, through uh, people are starting to do it through like Google Plus or um, all sorts of different venues. But um, it's very popular over different forums, and you can find these all over the internet. There's tons of this going on. If, if you've never been aware of this before, it is an absolute massive subculture uh, in the RPG community. And so you can find really big groups of this going on at mythweavers.com, um, I think rpg.net, at uh, Giant in the Playground Games, the, the, ho the home of uh, the Order of the Stick comic. Um, and so there's all of these, you know, uh, oh, the Pathfinder website uh, has the in their forums, there's a great a group of play-by-posts campaigns going on. And so play-by-post happens where um, usually what happens is the DM puts out a, a, a call for applications and says, I am, you know, call for players. I am running a game of, you know, Pathfinder. I'm going to run the Skulls and Shackles campaign path. Um, so everyone go ahead and submit your characters. And they'll they'll the DM will provide a list of guidelines of, you know, um, what version of the rules they're playing, if there's any sort of main house rules or content that's not allowed is a common thing of like, you know, core only or anything is, you know, anything not core is allowed as long as you run it by me first, stuff like that. Um, you know, what is your generation for your, uh, sorry, your method for generating characters? Um, and They'll call for applications. So you submit your character idea, um, and sometimes they'll have you submit just a grain of an idea and then have you build it out later once they accept your character. Sometimes they just want you to submit a fully built and realized character build, and then you throw that in there, and the GM either accepts it or rejects it. And exactly how the method they use for choosing characters varies greatly between the uh, mood of the GM and also the, um, the uh, kind of Pop, the supply and demand of players. Usually there's a much higher population of players and a very low population of DMs. Just kind of like in real life games, actually. And so um, so the GM then collects all, you know, the, they, they pick all the characters that are going to be in their game, and then they start playing. Um, so usually there's an application thread. Any, um, any site that hosts play-by-post games will have a recruitment area where all the GMs will post their ideas. And then once you get your game started, you take the game out of the recruitment thread and you move it to an out-of-character thread where you have your discussion about, you know, characters, about making, you know, they'll make your ties between characters, any backstory connections. And also just once the game start gets going, you'll have the banter going on behind the scenes. And then the game starts. So the GM will post all the situations um, uh, just like you would if you were um, playing the game, but it's very asynchronous. The GM might post, you know, they'll, they'll make a big post kind of laying out the, the you know, how you all start and, uh, you know, hey, everyone, you're in a tavern, blah, 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 here's what happens. What do you do? And all the care, or, you know, uh, who do you go talk to? All the sort of stuff. And the players 
will uh, write their responses throughout the course of the next day. It's almost it's usually a, a, an accepted uh, or sorry a, a an expectation that you will post once a day or more. That's usually stated in the rule in the uh, application rules as kind of what the posting frequency is. What I have found is that in reality. You may check in every day, but a lot of times you may not actually have anything to post yet because you're waiting for other people to respond. So you you should check in every day and and possibly post, but you often won't actually need to write a post every day. GMs usually do. So these games are fun because it's really easy to have a lot of them going concurrently because they don't take a huge time investment. Unlike, uh, you don't have to do any sort of scheduling. You just kind of make sure that once a day you pop in, you, you you save all your threads and your bookmarks. You pop in, you check on your thread, you see where the update is. If you need to take your turn, you do. If you don't, you come back tomorrow or later that night or something. Um, and uh, so it's fun because you can have a lot of things going on, but they they can be really challenging because they are really slow. Um, I was in a game that lasted for a, a, a year or more and probably only got through the amount of content we would run in, oh geez, you know, uh, a couple, probably half a, you know, maybe a dozen play sessions at most. I mean, it was moving really slow and it almost died like three times. And some games will do better than others. I've, uh, they have a really high mortality rate. Um, so... Whenever you join a game, there's a probably a good 50-50 chance that that game will die in the month. But the ones that last, they're really fun, and and you uh, you get it creates a you've got a fun uh, interaction with these people on the internet that you you know usually in addition to the main story, there's banter going on in the out of character thread, kind of like kind of like guild chat in if you play an MMO, the the out of character thread kind of fills that role, and it's really fun as well because you have time. You have time to create good responses and craft them well and make them very, um, uh, very well written. Uh, very and your characters can be be very well spoken. Um, I, as a player, will often suffer from um, being put on the spot and and not processing super fast. And uh, in play by post. It's okay to take five minutes and think about what I actually want to do. If I'm at a gaming table, five minutes is an eternity for me to decide what I want to do. Um, if I need to go look up a spell and figure out how to how to use it um, at a table, that's that's a you know that's a party foul. At, at uh, but on a play by post, that's great. So you can get away with really complex characters that maybe have lots of fiddly bits that you need to go coordinate and look up and make sure you have your details right. But you have time, so it's it's fun. You can uh, uh, sometimes the uh, games can have a very nice social bent because characters can really have nicely nice eloquent written responses back and forth, uh, and characters can sound really really classy. <laughs> so um, they're a lot of fun. If you if you're interested at all, I highly encourage you to go take a look at some of those websites I mentioned. They're all over the place, but uh, I, I'm a big fan of Mythweavers and uh, Giant in the Playground games, and also the the Pathfinder forums. And you can do them almost anywhere. There's a couple new sites that are popping up now uh, that are providing good homes. I'm actually a big fan of a new one called Tavern Keeper um, that's providing some nice tools as well. Um, and some folks will do it over on Obsidian Portal. 
anywhere where you have a, a game forum, you can have a play-by-post. It's really hard if that forum doesn't include a dice roller. So most of the popular venues will have built-in dice rollers where so that you can do your, your hit rolls, your uh, damage rolls, things like that. But the, I hear of people who are running games in not in uh, places that don't have dice rollers, like Google Plus, where they'll use other uh, off, uh, they'll use dice roller tools that are in other sites, and they'll just copy and paste results in stuff like that. So you can play it anywhere you have an ongoing stream of text. Um, I know they're kind of an outgrowth of old muds as well. Um, back in the day when. Uh, when uh, those were those were popular, so it's a whole different world of of role playing. Um, but they're really fun, and uh, I like how many you can have going at once. I probably have six games going on right now, and they're all very very different, different systems, different genres, um, and uh, you have to be patient. But they're a really good time. I know. Um, so that was one of the first things that you and I had done. I think you had like sent me a couple tweets uh, about the show that you were a fan, but that's really about all the interaction that we had. And then you invited me to play in one of your play-by-post games that we did that's in the right. giant, giant the playground forums. And I had, you know, had never done that before. So normal Michael method is I did some research and I, I went on there and I, I just started like dropping in and reading some of the threads of other games just to see how it worked. And I think I commented to you. I was surprised at the level to, level of narrative control yep. that players had in that uh, system because normally a, a GM pretty much tells you what's happening and then a player reacts. In that method, because you can write in prose, you can talk about what your character thinks versus what they actually say. And I just I, it was a very interesting for me to see how much depth there was in that type of game, and I was very excited about playing at that point. Uh, the only thing our game kind of died. We were doing the D, <laughs> we were doing the D and D next play test, and then I think a, a second packet came out that was vastly different than the first oh, one. Oh yes. And then we also had one player, if I remember correctly, there's one player that kind of wasn't commenting as much. I don't remember specifically. Mm-hmm. I just remember there's one person that wasn't. And then the part that got me was combat. Like I was doing great, I think, until the combat come up, and then I got lost because I kept trying to figure out, okay, whose turn is it? Should I go? Because I, because you know, I wanted to like post my next three moves in a row just in case, so that you could <laughs> fill fill me in. But then, what if something changed? And yeah. so, when we the first time we got to combat, I really struggled with keeping up. But until then, I was having a lot of fun in that game. There, they are. There, there's definitely a couple main challenges. I have learned uh, from being with some D, from you know, some good DMs, some bad DMs, some of my own failings and learnings from that game. Um, a good DM in play-by-post has to have a really good sense of pacing, and they have to recognize when the players have had their say and the, the scene is kind of stalled, and they just need to take control and move it to the next scene. Um, and uh, it's really easy for scenes to kind of hit a, uh, a stall point where everyone's kind of said their, said their important parts, but it kind of isn't resolved yet, and the DM kind of needs to just move it along and recognize that everyone has done what they're going to do, and unless there's new input or a new catalyst, things are kind of done. And, and that's kind of tricky as a DM to re- recognize when players have done that. Um, and you also sometimes really need... Uh, you have to sometimes just kind of uh, herd the players along and make sure that they that, that if someone's not commenting that you have some venue for, to reach them offline whether it's Twitter or an email address or some way to go poke poke hey you 
you're gonna you're gonna come play, and if and if uh, you don't hear from them, you just move on without them. You skip their turn. You you just move forward. And uh, um, but it it definitely has some challenges. I've realized that me as a player that um, I've kind of realized recently that there are certain situations where if I start getting lost, like you were saying, Michael, if if I find myself getting lost um, in a in a social scene, if I missed some point and I'm not quite clear what's going on again, I will kind of just hold off on posting and kind of just hope other people will do it. And it's a bad... It, 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 can, uh, it contributes to silence, and silence is death in a play-by-post game. So they're hard, uh, and you kind of just have to you know, be okay with the fact that the game might just fall apart after, uh, after you know, a scene or two, and you move on. And, but if they, if they hold on and you get a good group together, they're really, really fun. Um, and uh, you'll find that there, if you hang out in a community for a while, you'll find that you build a reputation. People start recognizing you. You'll start recognizing other people, and a lot. And GMs will accept you or want you in their game, or or not want you in their game, based on that reputation. And they will try for for players who they know are good. And so, yeah, there's def- It's a it's a fun way to become part of a community as well. So you said you have six games working around now. Are you GMing all of them, or are you a player in some? I am currently GMing none of them, actually. I was GMing one for a, uh, one for a little while that then uh, we let go. Um, but yeah, currently I'm a player in all of them. I was actually just about to start a new one, and then magically I found myself with three real-life games of Fate going on, and I decided that I didn't need to start up my own play-by-post game. So I have an idea for one that if... if uh, if I get bored, I'm going to start up. But right now, I've got plenty on my hands. So, so what would you say is one of the biggest either differences or challenges between running a, a game on the on the table, whether it be for like writing a scenario or writing out the plot versus play by post? Do you do more planning in play by post or less because you have more time to react to what players are doing? Um, the big thing, the the biggest thing uh, I, I see in play by post is that you have to be you have to be clear because if anyone has to ask for a clarification, you just lost a day. And so, as the DM, the DM has to be really. Usually, DM posts are fairly long because they're making sure they cover all the inputs that a player's need in order to know what to do next. And if you if a DM makes a post and the players haven't responded to it like fairly soon, it's a good sign that they didn't quite understand what they sh- what their options were or or something was confusing because that's usually when people just go silent is when they're confused. So um, the good DMs make stuff really really clear so that people don't have to ask questions. Um, and it make it makes fate in particular hard to play on play by post because so much of fate has a lot of kind of negotiation among about aspects or about com, you know uh, compels and things like that. So I, I I'm actually a, a fan of more of a little more uh, of systems that use a little less negotiation. So would you? Because with the propensity of the internet now and you know there's sites like Roll Twenty and yeah. Google Plus. You could just as easy, if you don't have a gaming group, you could just go online and find one and play a real game. So what do you is, is the benefit of playing play-by-post over just saying, hey, we're going to do a Google oh, I see what you're saying. So biggest thing is scheduling. The reason I got into play-by-post is because I couldn't 
do real life games because of I could I uh, because of things that were going on in my life for a, a long while I could not ever commit to a schedule. I mean, in fact, heck, our fate our Deadlands Fate game we don't have a schedule. We yeah. just fit it in when we can, and um, I I have. Um, I can't. I there. I really couldn't commit to a real life game for a long time. Um, I just couldn't set the time aside ever. And so, play by post was a good outlet for me to scratch my itch. So, if you're someone whose life is having a really hard time just getting together with people, you just are having a hard time making it work. Play by post isn't may not be ideal, but it provides an outlet. And uh, so that's where I feel like it can be is most satisfying. Is it helps you scratch that itch when you can't get a group together. I can see that. Uh, at work, I have limited access to the internet. There's only so many sites I can get to. There's a lot of stuff that I can't get to at work, but I was able to get to that giant in the playgrounds forum. So I was actually able to play at work, you know, and check in on my lunch breaks and stuff like that because my schedule is pretty crazy and hectic on times as well. So I, yep. I guess that, that would be the, def- the benefit is that you can squeeze in games where you wouldn't necessarily be able to. Absolutely. Uh, do you think that that play by post is is a better game for someone who's more fluff and story? Like, do you see someone who's like a min max or combat person enjoying the play by post? Probably, process? probably not, because for one thing, combats go slow. A combat can easily t- a combat will often take a week. If uh, if every if you're lucky and you can get one round of combat every day because everyone's on their game and they're posting, you'll get through one of com- one round of combat every day. So at that pace, a combat takes a whole week. And so very often, play by post games tend to be a little more sparing on combat. They tend to be more a, a little uh, a little more narratives or not narratives the wrong word a little more uh, interaction based because it works better. And so um, usually you tend to not have ran- – you don't have random encounters usually. You don't have encounters that don't matter because they're a major time investment. And so typically you're only going to have fights that are important to the story um, or to the, to the, the adventure. The, you, know, you don't have uh, – in fact, if I'm, looking at a, if I'm looking at an adventure and thinking about using it for play-by-post, I will stiff out some of the – meaningless encounters along the way that are intended to just sort of be resource drains for the players um, and I, I won't worry about it and I'll just get to the set piece fights um, because you just don't have time and so uh, I do think it's nice for people who um, have a more interactive playing bent um, in, in, in terms of uh, like social scenes and things like that also I think there's something just about the type of player that is drawn to play by post just culturally they seem to be a very you know they like writing, and so they usually have a nice, uh, a, a strong bent for character motivations. You know, social interaction scenes, and and uh, and narrating the inner thoughts of their characters, which I never do. But every game I play and has at least one or two people who narrate the inner thoughts of all of their characters. Inner monologuing. Yep, I never do it, but some people really like it. Cool, I appreciate that. Caleb, you've been kind of quiet. Do you have any thoughts or questions or comments, reporter? Well, my take on play-by-post really just kind of mirrors the back-and-forth you guys have had there. Combat is really difficult, and I think the strength of play-by-post is social interaction, more of a role-playing standpoint. In the past, when I've I've run a play-by-post for my own group, just because we couldn't get together, it... uh, 
what I liked best about it was it was much easier to start the players in separate parts of the game. I didn't start with, okay, you're in a tavern. Because I could have a, an individual thread for each player and say, okay, yep. here's your journey, you start here, uh, and you get to this point, what do you do? For a while, um, like in, in the one I, I, I attempted to run, we didn't get very far, um, all, the, all the players were in the same city, but they were all in different parts of it doing different things. And Play by Post excelled at that because we didn't have to pause at the table and say, okay, mm -hmm. player one, let's let's talk for ten minutes. Everyone else is just waiting and listening and getting distracted. Yeah. Splitting the party is not a bad thing when you have play in Play by Post. It, it, it doesn't screw things up at all. Right. And it's also really good uh, to go back to something we have talked about in a previous Dungeon Talk. If you have to do something secret... Mm -hmm. or personal individualized research or individual character growth and development, it's going to stay secret. You can't take that cheat out of, okay, guys, don't pay attention to this, or no one knows this but John. John, do you want to tell everybody, or yes or no, blah, blah, blah. You know, if you're in John's thread, probably no one else can get in there, or no one else is going to pay attention to it. If you do a little side thread, or you're IMing or emailing someone back and forth, it's really easy to do that, mm -hmm. and that has its benefits. Absolutely. Um, I think what I like best about Play by Post is, as you said, Porter, you can really make sure your action is correct. Mm -hmm. You can really take the time to say how you're doing something, how you're saying something. It's much easier for me to role-play a character in play-by-post. Because, as silly as it sounds, you always have that tiny little moment of embarrassment when you're really getting into how a character would say something. Yep. In a face-to-face -face game, there people, get, people get embarrassed. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a new player or a seasoned player, if you really want to break out something really diplomatic or intimidating or you're trying to seduce somebody or you're trying to pitch that uh, that passionate plea to the duke or the king you know sometimes it's hard to force yourself into that momentum and really talk and think like your character would but in a play by post you can write for pages in old English Shakespearean and really get into the groove and it's really fun to do it that way. I just was thinking that if I ever were to run a play by post, the first month would be farming. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, the crops are due. What are you going to do? Okay, oh, let's be honest. Okay. You would just make everybody get a Farmville account on Facebook. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Well, that's that's a great discussion. I think it's it's an avenue that um, it, I really enjoyed what we did. I'm glad I was a part of it. I don't know that for me personally, it's a great avenue, but I can certainly see where for some people that would be very beneficial, particularly of time crunch. And if nothing else, just again going back to campaign ideas, go troll some you know threads on the different forums and 
read through and get some inspiration, maybe for a character, for an NPC, or just for a plot. You know, just, you could just steal something that someone else has, has written. Uh, I really got into that as much as anything was just reading other people's comments and. It was just really interesting to me to read what they were writing and follow along the story. It's very cool. They are fun to read. It is def- it, You can definitely go out. Most of them are publicly publicly accessible, so you can go read the in-character threads and just see how the story has progressed. Very cool. You can give us feedback and comments at our website, dndacademy.com. You can check out previous podcasts at our website and subscribe to future ones on iTunes. If you have a suggestion for a topic, we'd love to hear it. Email your ideas to podcast at dndacademy.com, and you can connect with us on Twitter at dnd underscore academy. As always, thanks for listening, and remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right.